Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to the Living History UK podcast, a podcast for the discerning and knowledge hungry historians out there. You can support our podcast and get much more from Living History UK by joining our Patreon from just £1. And by doing so, you'll be a part of an ever-growing community and really help to make a difference as we strive to keep history alive. But for now, enjoy this podcast. Hello and welcome to the Living History UK podcast. I am your host, Pete Neal, and today I am joined by a very special guest who I've known for many, many years and also took me under his wing in the world of World War One Living History uh, all those many years ago and you would have heard his name mentioned more than one occasion on the podcast and that is Lawrence Taylor. Lawrence how are you? I'm fine thank you Peter and good evening. So today we are going to be talking about uh, reinterment units and a bit about the cleanup after the First World War and during as well. Um, the uh, to me, I, I I feel, I think Lawrence might agree as well, that the reinterment units are all among the unsung heroes of the First World War, because as you're going to discover in this episode, that their their life wasn't, wasn't great in the job that they had to do. So, Lawrence, reinterment units. So who were these blokes who went into these reinterment units was it a pacific unit or were they a unit of volunteers or you know how were they organized um they were infer- um they were invariably a unit of volunteers because it wasn't a very nice job obviously um most of them um if we take the yeep sailing as an example were created in in 1917 as a very famous unit in the um salient um i mean yeeps which was Unit number sixty-eight, and they were the ones who uh, who um, actually set the standard um, uh, for the units. Before that, it was just the ordinary blokes from the infantry battalions would be given the job after an action to go out, find, and bury the dead. Obviously, that was very very difficult. If you bear in mind that the First World War was uh, 
artillery war. Um, most of the bodies and the wounded would, if they had survived the attack, then the next artillery barrage would invariably um, end their lives and their bodies would be um, um, then lost. But if the battle moved on, um, then it would be the men from the infantry battalion that had actually gone into action will be given a job to um, bury their mates. Yeah, and that, I think that you know that's um, you know it, I think it sort of speaks for itself in a way. You got the like the amount of missing there is, or or even unmarked graves, you know, among the missing and unmarked graves. It's just because it's just constantly churning it up, especially in those big offensives as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you had the problem they would mark the grave, and the grave marker, which would be um, um, either a rifle or a wooden cross, that would be lost. And you get um, some blokes come past, and they'd find the marker, they'd find the grave, and they put the marker on the grave. And invariably, that wasn't the actual grave that the marker was for. So you're um, it's actually coming very, very difficult to find um, of the dead and um, identify them. So that was the main problem. Um, and, and obviously, in the um, say the battles of Luce and the Somme in 1917, it would be very, very difficult to go out and uh, find the dead and also the wounded. And any cemetery that you dug would be destroyed pretty quickly. Yeah, especially at those uh, battlefield cemeteries right up on the uh, front line. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but if they, yeah, if they um died, obviously behind the front line, then that was um that was okay. Um, but anybody that's um on the front line would be very very difficult to find. Them. Yeah, because I always find that when going to the Western Front is when like you when you when you get the eye for it when you can when you start working out what is a battlefield cemetery, what is a casualty mm-hmm. clearing station, and then obviously eventually get to a hospital cemetery like at Lysenthook yeah. and it's the amount of unknown graves that are in there because it's it get like we say it's, it's just getting so churned up it got to the point even if they know who's in there they want you know they don't necessarily know that is actually the person that's meant to be sort of thing no yeah um yes um if you go to um Tynecott, you see the um graves around the uh and the bunker um up at Tynecott. Um, underneath the cross of sacrifice, they are the original ones. And if you yeah, go yeah. Um, sanctuary wood, then again, you get the original ones, and they're not in straight lines, they're all you know, all over the place. Yeah, it's uh, very uh, ununiformed, isn't it? That's it, yeah. And then you get the cemeteries that were after the after the first world war, they're all very uniform and they're all, uh, all, in, um, all in nice straight lines as the army liked it. Yeah, nice, neat, straight lines. Neat, straight lines. Yeah. So, when? So, how early were they starting this? Then this reinterment work. Um, it really starts, as I said, in in the Yeats Sailing. It started in nineteen seventeen. Um, they had problems with the uh, with family members in nineteen fourteen and nineteen. Uh, well. After the Battle of Mons, um, with a retreat down to um, Villa's uh, uh, Cotteray, you will be getting um, some family members going over to find their sons. 
That's and mad, that, isn't it? Yeah, that is. That is. And um, by then, Fabian Weir is, has decided that anybody who is actually killed on the Western Front stays on the Western Front unless he's wounded and he's brought back to Britain and he dies um, in the hospitals back here. And that's when you see them in the um, um, in the churchyards in England. But anybody that uh, anybody that's killed on the Western Front, um, uh, Fabian Weir wanted them to stay on the Western Front. Because when um, Mark Lambert was on here not so long ago, and he told me about the uh, the tourists that were coming over, well, so, you know, a mixture of tourists and mothers, wives coming over to find. Um, you know, their missing son or husband or brothers. And I was like, that is absolutely mad. <laughs> you know, you're, you're coming over and it's like the worst war the world has seen in many, many, many years. And yeah. you're just rocking up to the front line, hoping that you're going to find your lost one. You find one. Um, there's instances of, um, I think 1919 is one of the first tours that go over there. And they're going up the Menin Road in a um, in a coach, and there's and some blokes that hoofed at um, uh, um, Trader, and um, and they're actually burying the dead as they uh, um, as they go up the road towards uh, um, Gellerfield. Yeah, it's just amazing, isn't it? To think it's like they're still they're still trying to clear the place up. But you've got mm. people trying to make pilgrimages over there, or just going for a look, sort of thing. It's right. and it's also very dangerous because there's oh, loads yeah. of people flying around. And, oh, cool. uh, yeah. And um, there's um, somebody calculated something like um, after the war, there's something like one point three million gas rounds in the salient and gone off. So they've got that problem as well. Well, yeah. Mm. Highly so, dangerous plus. Well, yeah, a dangerous job for the blokes as well. <laughs> Doing yeah, it up. Uh, so, yeah. what, so when obviously, obviously, it's working in different sort of phases. But how are they actually finding these blokes? Well, um, if you if you have a look at Arden Bawtree's book, he was the uh, photographer um, in the Yeep Salient. Uh, he's the one that used to go around taking the photographs of the graves. Uh, for the families. He went out with, I think it was Unit 32, up to the Passchendaele Ridge um, um, on the Gravenstaffel Ridge, which is just below um, Passchendaele Ridge, and he went out with them, and um, um, they're going across the land, and it's, uh, you can see, um, you can see that there's been a battle fought there. Um, all the grounds churned up, but by 1919, it's all grass and uh, etc. Um, they were experienced men. They could judge where a body was buried. Um, they could see that if there was any standing water, it was a um, it had gone black. Uh, if there was any grass, it was a it was a greenish blue uh, blue tint. Um, if any rats had actually gone down to the body, um, you could find bones and um, uh, sections of equipment there as well. Um, and they used to mark it with a pole and a flag, and they would get around twenty. I think the most they could take back to Tynecourt then was about twenty for a burial in one day. 
and then um, to make sure they would use the rod from a Vickers machine gun and to clear it, and they used to put it into the ground. Um, um, they would find an area where they thought the body was, which is invariably in a hole um, where the body was um, in the ground, obviously, and then they would um, pull out the uh, rod and they would smell the end. Um, sometimes you get some people said they used to taste it, but I'm still not convinced that they used to do that. But they used to smell the end, and they could smell if there was a body down there, and then they and then they would um, then they would dig it up. Yeah, because so some of you know, I was sort of led to believe, you know, taste it because they got too used to the smell of death that the only thing yeah. they could do was taste taste the end. But things that's opened you up to all sorts of illnesses and things like that, hasn't it? Interesting things, yeah, yeah. And then they would dig it up. They were um, they were in quit. Um, the grave registration units went out with a stretcher, um, hessian sack, um, creosote to disinfect the um, stretcher after use, um, and a shroud, pick, shovel, um, rubber gloves. Although you see the blokes, they're very seldom wearing rubber gloves when they bring the bodies up, but, and they're just doing it with their bare hands. Wire cutters, because they um, sometimes they used to find um, the bodies in the barbed wire entanglements. So they had cut through the barbed wire entanglements. And um, then the officer would make sure he, um, everything that was found on the body. So they would look for his dog tags. Um, he would have um, some other ID on his braces, which was a stamped penny and uh, aluminium disc and from about 1917 on he would have a wrist bracelet now that's a soldier that has been killed in action and he's been buried after he died by um shell fire etc um obviously the spoon that's another thing that uh you know spoons and cones and um luckily um, if he had been killed in action, there was a pretty good job that the salvage, um, the, um, the, um, salvage companies hadn't been around there. So he would still have his boots on. And there is an instance of a Royal Irish Rifles officer that was identified because he had his name scratched inside his boots. So that's how they could find out. Because boots isn't somewhere I'd think to look for, for a bloke's number, to be honest. No, yeah. Yeah. They, um, um, these blokes were, um, intent that they be identified for the families and they didn't yeah. want the families to worry about that they were identified so they go through you know any kind of method so they'd be identified and, and you get some of them um, um, unfortunately as I was saying when they were salvaging um, before burial or, or if they found them in the battlefield and the, um, the um, salvage teams uh, found them then they would they would um, remove the boots but if the soldier was killed in action and he was buried buried where he fell there's not even a good chance he's still got his boots on and oh, that's wow. how they identify them yeah so, so also, when you mentioned the spoon is you know that's um heart back to the document that i've got um in my possession because where my uncle he was reinterned and mm. and it shows how thorough that these blokes were when they're actually going through the remains of the bodies trying to identify them. Um, yeah. It's got the good reference to where the original grave site is, obviously the name of the soldier. And 
it then says in one of the columns how they've been identified. Um, and one of the soldiers, the reason he got identified was because of his spoon. Like my uncle, he he still had his ID disc on him. So it's got marked down identity disc or ID disc. Um, it's got written down and a couple of the others have as well. But that was one of the ones that did stand out. When I first found that document, it was the spoon. And I was like, that's mad. If that bloke hadn't have had that spoon on him, or like you said, the salvage lads hadn't been around and taken his spoon away, he would never have been, he'd just been an unknown soldier. Yeah. Or, or yeah, it'd be but... like a soldier of such and such regiment. That's right. Yeah. And that was a problem early in the war because um, of the ID tags. Um, and they, um, they only had one ID tag. I think you have to wait till the song when you get the second ID tag. So one ID. ID tag stayed on the bodies, you know, and the other one went to the adjutant. But the blokes used to have their um, own ones, which was it, which was invariably on the braces. So if you found the body um, and you were looking for ID, then you went inside of the tunic. If if he didn't have his pay book, then one of the places you could look was on his braces, and invariably he'd have the um, aluminium disc or the um, stamped Victorian penny or penny with all his ID on it. So you could, you know, if you were lucky, but there's so many blokes, um, there's so many blokes blown to pieces, um, you know, say the, say the battles of late 1915 onwards, that, it, that um, it's very, very difficult, you know, very, very difficult. And then you've got the, um, um, and the graves on the battlefield and it's been fought over again. But um, the... Um, Maps that they were issued with the squares on it. Um, I have one of the Messines Ridge, and uh, there's all the squares on there. But these, there were graves that were notified in there as well, so they were, um, so they knew there would be um, a certain amount of um, um, cemeteries there, and they could. Yeah, so these are the so these are the ordnance survey maps that you sometimes come across. Like if you type in like World War One battlefield map or something like that, and you get this ordnance survey map, and it's just literally just covered like every square is covered in numbers like hundred yeah. here, two here, and it's just, just a mismatch of just loads of numbers all on top of this ordnance survey map. Yeah, that's it, and that's the thing with um, Fabian Weir. Um... Um, when he um, actually starts this, um, he says, we aren't going to treat the soldiers like we did in the Crimean War. You know, we are, we are going to make sure that these men are found, buried. We yeah. can um, um, uh, find out their names, etc. So that's his main, no, main idea. And they will all be buried together and they will stay on the, and they will stay on the Western Front. So you'll have an ordinary soldier in one grave, and next one you could have a brigadier general. Yeah, it just shows as well how much it had changed since the time of the Crimea. Because really, this is the only, this is the first time in this war where so much care and attention's being taken not only to the officers but to every man that was there. Like, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but. Um, there's a very, um, there's another very good book called the uh, Burgoyne Diaries, and it's an officer in Second Battalion Royal Irish Rifles. Uh, he's a Boer War veteran, and he takes a draft out to the Messines Ridge in just over the Christmas 1914, 1915, 
And the thing that he remarks about is how many unburied dead there are in an area around uh, in the Saints Ridge, uh, Kemmel, um, Plug Street Wood. And uh, most of them are French. He said there's a lot of uh, our blokes in there um, from attacks that went in um, in late 1914. But the thing, um, he says there's just hundreds and hundreds of dead Frenchmen everywhere. And they haven't been picked up. He said because it's so highly dangerous. Yeah, and come out the trench and bang, and you join them. So you get an yeah, idea. Yeah, that's the thing is like yeah, you got the like you said like where they're doing it at battalion level to go right. You're sort of bit you're burying the lads and that, but yeah, you sometimes just can't physically do it. Oh yeah, it's far too dangerous. And you go out at night, and there's um, um, there's the uh, assistant director of the Graves Registration Unit, a um officer by the name of uh. Gell, G-E-L-L, he goes up to the area around the old 1915 battlefields of uh, Festiver, Albers Ridge, Nerve Chapelle, and uh, he says that is that was still on the top. You still had soldiers that were killed there in 1915, and he was up there in 1918. Wow. And you get Lawrence Binion in his book um, also says that when... Uh, his battalion of the Sussex Regiment were in there in 1915 before they go up to the Somme in 1916. He also says there are blokes lying around there that have been there. And so do the Australians who are up there for, uh, from Elf. He says there's British soldiers. Um, um, there's old British trenches and there's still British soldiers in there from 1915. So if you, you know, if you think of that and all these areas that have been fought over so many times, and that's why you get so many, um, you know, so many missing. But that area around, um, Festival, Albears Ridge, you just couldn't get out of the trench because it's just, um, swept with artillery fire, which made it very, very difficult. So when, 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 when it come up to the actual cleanup phase of it, that's just going to be a horrendous job. So you got those blokes who have been laying there for best part of four years. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, yeah, in all the various, obviously you got the blokes, like you said, from like four, like say fifteen, but now yeah. they're now they're being moved in eighteen. That that's in a like that'll be in a really bad state of yeah. decomposition well, to try and move. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, to be quite honest, um, if you read what the grave registration blokes used to say, they didn't mind the blokes that had been laying around fifteen uh, from nineteen fifteen because they were fully decomposed. Oh it's yeah, like, I suppose, yeah, it'd just be bones they're picking up and bits of kit, I suppose. Yeah, exactly, Pete. But if you get the blokes that have been dead about six about six months, or blokes they found in shell holes, that was a that was horrendous because the blokes in the shell holes used to pull them out and they just used to fall to pieces and used to turn to something like chalk. Oh wow! And then you get the blokes who have been dead for say six months, a year. Um, they were still soft and juicy, so to speak. Yeah. So, you know, they didn't like that. So I suppose you find yeah. a bloke in the shallow, it's all the water getting into him as well that just makes it... That's it. Like that's a mush, it. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And there's um, and there's lots of occasions. And um, uh, some of these grave registration units used to go out with the Padre, and that's the um, thing with um, the Unknown Warrior, because um, David Railton was the Padre of 19th London's in 47th Division. And the division took high wood on the Somme, and uh, he went up there with the with an officer and men who were 
from the same battalion and they went up to Highwood and their job was to um, find and bury the men from their own battalion. And uh, I think they, uh, and I think he made sure that the, um, they had double rum ration because most blokes before they went out had double rum ration and they would have on the strength um, with the full-blown grade registration units at the end of the war, you'd have something like 1,500 to 2,000 blokes. But they'd have five, 500 blokes on sick grade every day. That's taking their toll. But what, oh, oh, right, so it's not a case they'd like sort of picked up a lurgy for moving the corpses about then? Yeah, no, um, some of it would be, but some of it is just a psychological effect on them because um, later in the war, most of the blokes are um, suffering from shell shock. And they that's find probably, that's probably the worst job you can give them. The worst job you can get. Yeah. Um, and that's what um, David Railton says with the blokes from the 19th London. They are going into shock, so he has to give them some brandy. And that's what gave him the idea for the Unknown Warrior and to bring one of these men back. But after the war, you used to get uh, some of the grave registration unit men that um, when they were demobbed, they used to stay on the battlefield and live in, in the bunkers. And there's instances of one uh, one soldier um he married a belgian girl had two children and he was still living in one of the bunkers say 1925 wow that's that's man, that, that's one of them that's one of them things you never hear about yeah because he was so um it had affected him so much that the only place he felt safe was the environment that he'd he'd experienced for three years and wow. then he finally thought, well, I better go and buy myself a house. And then he <laughs> moved to the Eaps. But there was two, and there was two blokes that were living in living in separate bunkers because of the um, the uh, psychological effect on them. That's that is oh that that yeah that, that's sort of, that's sort of taking me back because you just don't hear about that sort of thing. So you think once all the lads went home, that was it. They you know they they went home and the cleanup operation started, and that was it. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, the um, the uh, psychological effect, and and I think a lot of the reason why these blokes stayed out there as gardeners, they stayed out there because they they felt at home with it. Yeah, that might not be the right um, right uh, way of describe it, but they just couldn't go back to um, civilian life. They had to yeah. stay out there with their um, mates, so to speak. Yeah, that's probably what the other thing was. But they made every effort to make sure that these men, when they found them, everything was done properly because um, before they're interned in the big cemeteries, they went through all the details at least three times to make sure it was it was right. And uh, I didn't realise it was that thorough. I knew they were thorough, but I didn't think it was like they're a three-time check thorough. Like. Yeah, and they used to go through it three times. And the officer, and you had, a, you had another officer, if you take the example of time cot, you'd have another officer up there and he'd check it before they interned the body. And they'd intern 20 a day. And then they'd go and do it the next day. Cause so so we got the lads, uh, you know, try, going to find them, re-exhuming them, doing their examinations. But don't the William uh, Women's Army Auxiliary get involved as well once they get formed? Yeah, they're, um, yeah, they... There's uh, 35 of their members are gardeners. They're at, they're at Wimanu and uh, Wimanu and Adwell. Um, very good, um, 
if you can never find, um, if you can ever go to the Imperial War Museum and find her notes, is Nora Barker. Um, she was a gardener at Advil. And, um, she, um, she, uh, helps bury the, um, nine wax that are killed by a German bomb in, uh, May, May 1918, when the Germans bombed the, um, bombed the hospital in the camp at, uh, Advil. And, uh, she's very, um, um, by the end of the war, she's very matter of fact. She, it, it just doesn't affect her. She's just, no. it's, it's a job. And she just ignores it and she gets on with it. Is she is she the lady that you told me about long well, quite a few years ago that there was a there, there was a burial job and she just said, I've got another another twelve to do now. That's it, yeah. Yeah, they had the um and they had the press um because it was um there was a very, very big funeral because the Australians organised a funeral for these nine nine wax and yeah. um kittens. I think there's a little bit of film on it, but there's certainly uh, certainly some um, photographs, and she's standing there with um, and some members of the press and uh, and etc. And she just says, "Right, that's it. I've got another half dozen to do, and then another dozen this afternoon." Excuse me. And off she goes. And off she goes. Carries on. <laughs> just carries on, and it's the same with the blokes doing the and the jobs. They, um, yeah, and they do it to make sure. Um, there might be an outside chance that the bloke that they're digging up is one of their mates, so they make sure it's done properly. Yeah. And then they've got it on the back of their minds about the families as well. Because um then they've got to do it and they've got to do it properly. So was it just was it just gardening then they the uh, wax were doing? Yeah, they would um they would backfill the graves. Sometimes it was the blokes, but more often than not, they would mark out the graves as well. Mm-hmm. And then you get the blokes would come in and dig it. And then they would tend the graves. Um, any uh, flowers or wreaths they would place on the graves. And that's interesting that they'd get them to backfill it. You know, you've got the blokes digging yeah. it, so you thought you have the blokes filling it back yeah. in. <laughs> yeah. I would have thought the blokes would have done it, but yeah, they used to backfill it. So, um, and because you're getting um, relatives starting to visit visit these cemeteries before the end of the war, so you get the big um, cemeteries in the rear. You're starting to get people coming over, and obviously the first tours come over in 1919. So when, so when we like say about the Americans, um, they got re-exhumed. Hmm. So was that was that was that the Americans doing that, or would that have actually so like the lads who were at Lysenthook? So there's a big, big, big square spot at Lysenthook that was actually full of Americans. Yeah. Um. So was so was that done by their own people, or was that done? I'll say by our people. That was done. Um. I would imagine that the um. The Americans put a lot of pressure on the Belgian and French governments to bring their dead home because uh, the Belgian and French governments passed a law so you can't exhume a body once it's been interred in the cemetery. But the Americans put a lot of pressure on the French and um, then they will be exhumed by the workers in the cemetery and picked up by the American American authorities. And I think they used to go out from Boulogne. Don't yeah, I think that's where he used to come in from as well, wasn't it, Boulogne? Yeah, 
because there's one of our blokes going home on leave and he said he's he's on the dock and there's dozens of these American um American um dead actually going home on a boat in their coffins. He said there was, you know, dozens of them on the on the quayside. But the um British uh the British Australians etc would leave them leave them on the battlefield. Although there is instances that um, bodies were exhumed by the families and taken home, there's one. I think there's one Canadian was exhumed, and the family was able to get him home. But all the other ones, they were stopped on the docks. Yeah, because that'd just be a logistical nightmare. That would yeah. have been. Yeah, um, they used to dig him up at night, and they used to employ blokes to do it. And, it's uh, almost like grave robbing then. Yeah, it's almost like Burke and Hare, isn't it? Yeah, it is, isn't it? So they used to bring them on. Um, but the effect on the families is, is was, um, especially if they were missing, uh, because that was, um, you know, some of the problems. There were so many blokes that were missing, and the families didn't think they were dead. So that so that brings in other problems. But um, if we go over there now. I think people will be surprised the amount of aggravation Fabian Weir had off the yeah and the families and also people at home yeah yeah but it was a worthwhile job it and, was and when you see yeah. the cemeteries you know you, you know that they're, they're so well tended to today but obviously these people they laid the foundations and the groundwork of what it is today that's it that's it and I think when they brought the unknown warrior back that that helped to um and prevent a lot of the anguish with the uh, obviously with the uh, families, and even then they made sure they picked the body from a nineteen fifteen battlefield so it would be fully decomposed. Oh Christ! And that's why they did it, yeah. and they brought him back to um, St Paul, and yeah. the officer in charge of uh, Brigadier Brigadier General White, he just picked one body out of a, out of the out of the fort, and I think that that stopped a lot of the um. And requests for bodies to be brought back, yeah, because that was their son or their or their husband or their brother, and that that tended to stop it. And then when they started building them um, cenotaphs in every town in the in the country, then that um, and that helped. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I think that helped quite a lot when they started building the war memorials. I think, yeah. Yeah, and then um, um, so that would um, it would bring closure to them. Mm. Yeah, but the um, grave registration units used to do a do a very good job, very dangerous job when they're clearing the battlefield because of the ordnance that's laying around, etc. But they um, they would use German prisoners of war and also uh, Chinese labour corps to help them as well. Yeah, I'm not surprised about the Chinese Labour Corps because they, they had that weird contract that lasted like another two or three years after the war. That's it. And they were getting blown up all over the place. Oh, yeah. I think really it's sort of almost like a piecemeal. It's like, right, off you go. It's like, yeah, very, very piecemeal. Very, yeah. very piecemeal. But um, they, um, on the Belgian government in um, in Yeeps only um, requested the farmers to go down to the full depth of their plough in 1972 because they um, they only used to plough the surface because there was so much ordnance just under the ground and bodies. Oh, yeah, I bet, yeah. And then they go down to the full plough 
and that's when they start, you know, finding more ornaments and finding more bodies because a lot of the bodies are very, very deep if they if they're in um, building graves or shell holes, etc. They only find them when they excavate roads or um, um, like a boozinger when mm. they have something like 187 bodies there. So you're going to find them there. But the um, evidently the Belgian army had so many um, so many gas rounds after the war that um, they were dumping them in the sea. That's a wise and idea, that, isn't it? <laughs> and that stopped in 1982. Wow. Uh, <laughs> um, and some are dumped off of a off the um, coast of a very ex- ex- exclusive Belgian holiday resort. But I don't think they're dangerous because they're in um, they're in boxes and they're all um, um, uh, silted over. Oh, it's highly wow. dangerous. Highly dangerous. Well, yeah, especially that now it gets released into the water yeah. as well. It's still, you know, it's still nasty stuff even after a hundred years. Yeah. So, um, um, I think um, Fabian were stuck by his guns. The grave registration units became highly professional. There was some instances where they had to um, open up one of the cemeteries. There's the famous one at Hooge Cemetery where they started to open up the graves and they were finding Germans in there mm. instead of our blokes or, or they'd find a foot in there and there'd be a, a soldier's name and they had to um, exhume, I think, about something like 300, um, 300 actual graves to find out who was, who was in there. Wow. But all in That's all, they did a... Yeah, but all in all, they did a very, very good job with grave registration unit blokes. And on the... Among the unsung heroes of the First World War, they are, and I think, and I think the reason why they stayed out there is first and to get over the um, actual trauma that they that they'd experienced, and um, um, to be close to their mates. Yeah, and they did a good job. They did, they did indeed. Lawrence, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on, and I hope you come on again soon sometime and we'll talk about another subject of your of your specialities okay mate um so um, you've you've mentioned them before um but if people want to learn more about these grave registration lads um where is the best place to go i know you've mentioned them already but just to remind them quickly right um there's there's a new book being published it's, uh, by uh, Elian. It's called Reclaiming the Salient by Roger Stewart. I recommend that because he also takes in the Second World War as well. Uh, if you can get a hold of Ivor Bawtree's book on um, his uh, times in the Eve Salient as the photographer. And um, there, there's another one called Silent Cities and that. Um, if you can get hold of it, that, um, that might be out of print, but um, you can still get copies, and that has photographs of all the cemeteries on the Western Front as they were when they were um, first uh, first built. That's so that would be quite an interesting one, flicking it, flicking through the pages and going to those cemeteries, and also like doing comparisons, yeah. like then and now sort of thing. Yeah, if you take something like Rifle House. Um, there's no trees around it at all. It's just a cemetery. There's yeah. No trees, no nothing. So you get a good idea of what it what it was like, say, about 1925, when all the um, cemeteries were uh, uh, finished. Yeah. Well, 
Thank you once again, Lawrence. And thank you to our listeners for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. So stay safe. And until next time, keep history alive. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to support it, then why not send us a PayPal donation? All donations help us pay to host the podcast and for us to create new content for your enjoyment. Furthermore, if you would like to submit a question or even a subject matter for the podcast, join Patreon and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The links are in our bio. Until next time, keep history alive. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.